Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century, and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. The title of this week's poetical selection is States, the Usual Suspects. With strands of sleep still twined about consciousness, I search, checking to see what feelings are present to meet today. Hungover from events of yesterday, one is never sure what residues will have endured through the night to filter what is yet to come. Memories are screened by some wired projectionist with a random bent and a real attitude to vent, giving an edge to the virtual scenes blinking on and off inside of me. I would like them to stop, but the whole thing is beyond my control. Rummaging through a closet of emotions looking for clothes to suit a mood, considering this and that possibility to convey who I am, at least for today. Nothing seems right, so in haste I pull whatever is next off the rack. Rituals of life have begun, and before the day is done, I will run through variations on an array of habits which color existence and consume time, traffic lights of being that tell one when to stop and where one should go. Appetites of one kind or the other start to flow in different parts of my body, push me here or pull me there forcing one to know when to say yes, when to say no, like an inductee in an army of living dead, hungers haunt me. Ideas wash up on the shores of awareness, floatsome from ships lost at sea, sifting through endless debris I try to salvage items of worth but the process goes slowly, for my life is variable and there are shadows with which to contend. Likes and dislikes flow through me as a northeaster, full of fury and driven rain, moved by forces I do not understand, wet and chilled to the bone, wondering when the next front is due to pass this way. Life seems to be trapped in cycles of sunny storms. Rhythms of the night begin to ascend as day's end slowly slips towards darkness. Thoughts of what might have been flicker in the twilight. Choices made, chances missed. Questions of right and wrong stir the air as I drift off to sleep. Where dreams wait, soon it starts again. The title of this week's story is Bidding for Favors. Every Wednesday evening had become known as the Gentleman's Club at the Center for Spiritual Pursuits. Part of the reason for this moniker was because most of the people who attended such sessions were quite wealthy and from fairly aristocratic families. However, as with many things, there was a history of sorts leading to the club's formation. 
More specifically, the mystical guide for the center believed that since rich people, some evidence to the contrary notwithstanding, are people too, he also felt such individuals ought to have an opportunity to be exposed to spiritual teachings. In order to help these individuals feel comfortable with their surroundings, the teacher had organized things so that mostly individuals from well-to-do families would be in attendance on such occasions. And thus, over a period of time, this practice had developed into, more or less, an unofficial institution known as the Gentlemen's Club. The way these meetings unfolded tended to vary from week to week, but usually at some point during the evening there would be a period of discussion concerning the nature of the mystical path. During such sessions, those who were interested often would ask about how to solve certain difficulties of life, because, some prejudice to the contrary notwithstanding, rich people are not immune to problems. For instance, an individual might say to the spiritual guide, quote, I am having a rough time dealing with my son. He won't listen to me. What can I do? End of quote. Of course, the advice dispensed by the guide would vary with the question raised, but the general form of the teachings often would be something like, Well, Mr. Smith, you need to say such and such, a sacred chant 100,000 times, and then you should repeat such and such a litany so many thousands of times. In addition, if you were to fast on every Monday for the next three months, I think, God willing, you will discover that this problem you are having with your son may disappear. Now, some participants of the Gentlemen's Club sincerely tried to put into practice whatever advice was given by the Center's spiritual guide. Quite a few of these individuals often found that, by the grace of God, many of the difficulties with which they came to the teacher would, in time, disappear, either completely or would become greatly improved, and therefore, eventually, would help bring about much more manageable and enjoyable lives. On the other hand, there also were some members of the club who, for whatever reason, were not really interested in following the practices recommended by the teacher for dealing with some of life's problems. Nonetheless, these individuals found benefit of one kind or another in attending the Wednesday meetings and, among other things, liked listening to the stories which the guide usually recounted during these occasions. Since the teacher did not stop being a guide for all the people who came to the center just because the gentlemen's club was in session, what frequently happened was the following. One of the teacher's assistants would appear in the entranceway to the room where the club's gathering took place and wait for the guide to notice her or him. And then once the assistant's presence was acknowledged, the assistant would say something like, Sir, Mr. Jones is here with a problem. The guide would give instructions to have the person in question brought to the door. When that individual appeared, the teacher would say something like, Mr. Jones, go home. Your problem is solved. Sometimes the assistant to the teacher might say to his or her guide, Sir, Mr. Jones is here and he just has something brief to say to you. And the teacher would agree to having Mr. Jones come to the doorway, at which time Mr. Jones might say, I just wanted to thank you for your help with my problem. By the grace of God, it got solved just the way you said it would. And then Mr. Jones would leave, and the activities of the Gentlemen's Club would resume at whatever point they had been temporarily suspended. Many of the people who were ushered in to the room's threshold at these junctures were very poor. 
Naturally, such individuals were most welcome throughout the other days of the week, but in order not to exclude them from having access to the teacher on Wednesday evenings when the gentlemen's club was in session, the foregoing process had been observed for as long as the club had been in existence. One night, after the usual Wednesday meetings had been completed, a member of the club requested a private audience with the teacher. The individual was one of those people who liked spending time with the guide, but who still was not ready to become committed to the spiritual path. The man opened the conversation with, I've observed over the years that there have been numerous instances in which you briefly have interrupted our Wednesday meetings from time to time in order to accommodate the needs of this or that person who had come to the door seeking your assistance. I think what you do for these people is wonderful, but I couldn't help notice there appears to be a difference in how you treat those individuals relative to how you treat the members of the Wednesday evening sessions. I mean, when we have difficulties, you give certain chants, litanies, or practices for us to do, and then oftentimes, by the grace of God, our problems do disappear, but when these people show up, you just seem to tell them that their problem is solved, and they go away. I may be missing something here, or it may be possible you have assigned certain chants and so on to them when we are not around, but if you will forgive me for saying so, there seems to be a certain, shall we say, difference in how things are handled with these people uh, and the members of the Gentlemen's Club. Now, the reason why I'm bringing all of this up is that I am an extremely busy man. My various companies keep me going seven days a week, 18 to 20 hours a day, and I consider myself very fortunate to be able to free up even a few hours of time for these Wednesday meetings. The various practices which you give to us when we come to you with our life problems tend to be very time-consuming. I would like to be able to devote the time necessary to do these things, but unfortunately, under the present circumstances, this is just not feasible. But of course, I am hoping that in the foreseeable future, my situation in this respect may change, and then I will have the time required to do the things you are advising us to do to help people like me who encounter different kinds of difficulty. However, for the time being, I was wondering if perhaps I might be able to pay whatever amount of money you feel is appropriate as a sort of substitute for not having to do the practices. I realize the people who come to the door on Wednesday night are usually quite poor, and maybe as an act of charity, you just help them out, and I don't really have a problem with that. Moreover, since money is not an issue with me, I am quite prepared to give thousands of dollars in lieu of time which for me is more precious than money. If you would be willing to accept this proposal I am making, if you wanted, you could distribute what I give to help out the poor. I would be quite happy with that. The guide had been listening to the man, and when the latter had finished outlining the suggestion, the teacher merely shook his head and said, Sir, I'm afraid you can't afford the cost of such an arrangement. The teacher's words startled the man. The latter protested, you may not realize it, but I am one of the wealthiest men in the country. Really, money is no object. Charge whatever price you like, and believe me, I can write you a check for that amount. The teacher merely repeated his former words. The guide thanked the man for his proposal, apologized for not being able to accommodate the idea, and suggested that if the man were in a position to do so, then whatever money the man cared to donate to the poor would be a good thing, and proceeded to terminate 
the conversation. Many years passed. As always happens with the passage of time, things simultaneously changed and remained the same. With respect to the rich man who had come to the spiritual guide with a proposal of exchanging money for time, the tides of fortune had turned to low ebb. The economy had fallen apart, and so had the man's business empire. He had lost almost everything, including his family. One thing led to another in his downward spiral, and as a result he had taken the drinking. Eventually he hit rock bottom and was as miserable, depressed, and forlorn as a person could be. Waking up one day in a shelter for the homeless, he felt deep despair. In such a condition he remembered the spiritual center and how kind and charitable the teacher always had been with respect to the poor and unfortunate, and as a result he decided to go there that evening. As the irony of fate would have it, it was Wednesday and the gentleman's club was in session. The man spoke with one of the teacher's assistants requesting an audience with the guide. The assistant came back a short while later and said, The teacher cannot see you right now, but if you will wait, he will try to meet with you in an hour or so. The assistant led the man to a room on the third floor, asked him to take a seat and be patient. The man was disappointed. He had hoped he would be ushered into the room, as had been done with all those other people he had seen when he was a member in good standing with the gentleman's club, and that he would be told by the teacher, go home, your problems are solved. But such was not the case. Instead, he had been kept waiting. Under the circumstances, it was an added humiliation. But because his situation was desperate and he felt as if there were nowhere else to turn, he waited in the room to which he had been taken. A little over an hour later, the door to the room opened and the teacher entered. He smiled, approached the man, and shook his hand warmly, saying, I'm terribly sorry for not coming sooner, but there were a few things which delayed me. The guide sat down near the man and commented, I have not seen you for such a long time. What's been going on? As soon as the question was asked, the man broke down and cried. Over the next hour, amidst sporadic tears, the man told the teacher all that had happened. The teacher listened with great empathy. When the man had completed summarizing the last ten years of his life, the teacher gripped the man's shoulder in an affectionate commiseration and called out for one of the center's assistants to come into the room. When the assistant appeared, the teacher said, Contact Mr. Carson and tell him we have someone to occupy that position he has been looking to fill. And then the assistant had left. The teacher returned his attention to the man in the room. I've taken the liberty of putting you forward for a job I have in mind. If you like the position, naturally you can keep it, and if there is a problem, we'll see what else we can find for you. But in the meantime, this job should help your situation out somewhat and then we can begin to take a look at some of your other difficulties. The teacher hesitated briefly and continued by saying, I didn't talk with you immediately when you came to the center, because the gentleman's club was in session, and I didn't want to embarrass you. I know you used to travel in the same social circles as those people, and showing up at the door in front of them might have been very difficult for you. The teacher became quiet and reflective for a moment. Eventually he said, do you recall that conversation we once had years ago when you were in position to offer money in exchange for the time which then you didn't have available for doing various chants and so on that I used to recommend to the members of the Gentleman's Club 
whenever they had problems of one sort or another? The man nodded his head in remembrance of that occasion, and feeling that he knew where the teacher might be going with the question, the man said with a sheepish grin on his face, Well, I guess I've got the time to do those things now, don't I? The teacher laughed and said, Yes, perhaps so. But actually I was thinking of another part of that conversation, the part when I told you that you couldn't afford the cost of the service which would permit you to exchange money for time. That remark puzzled you, didn't it? Thinking back, the man said, Yes, quite frankly, it did. The teacher responded to the admission with, At that time, you could afford the price of nearly everything, but spiritually speaking, you knew the cost of almost nothing. And now you can afford the price of almost nothing, but you have a much better appreciation concerning the spiritual cost of many facets of life. Son, the important things of life are almost always about cost, never about price. The price of our services here at the Spiritual Center has always been free. But there is a cost associated with everything we offer, both in the receiving as well as in the giving. At the time of our earlier conversation, you could not afford the cost of our services, neither with respect to the practices which I recommended, nor especially in relation to the help which used to be given to the people who would show up at the door during the meetings of the Gentlemen's Club. Now you have experienced something of these costs through the events of your life during the last decade, and consequently, I think you are ready to benefit from our help. The man embraced the teacher, crying, with relief and deep gratitude for the assistance he was receiving. When he managed to compose himself a little, he noted, There is one thing in relation to what you just said that I am not sure I understand. Upon noting the teacher's indication to continue on, the man said, you spoke about there being a cost associated with the services being offered here, both with respect to the receiving as well as the giving of such services. I suppose, to some extent, I may have garnered a little insight concerning what cost might be associated with the receiving of spiritual services, but I don't quite understand what costs are associated with the giving of these services. Presumably, you are not talking about the price of things necessary to operate the center, are you? The guide shook his head, saying, No, you're right. Although, obviously, there is a cost associated with the time, effort, and talent which underwrites the ability of people to acquire money to, for instance, donate towards the rent of this building. However, what I had in mind was more a matter of the tremendous sacrifices which many mystics of the past have had to make in order to ensure, by God's leave, that this spiritual tradition might be preserved and be available to those people today who are interested in seeking to take advantage of what the mystical path has to offer. The costs of their sacrifices are incalculable, and very rarely are ever properly appreciated, except, of course, by the one, namely God, who inspires and helps them to cover such costs. This week's musical interlude is Wandering Soul.
Since the beginning of time, there have been an unimaginably large number of choices that have been made by the beings that populate the universe. Relative to all the choices that have been made or could have been made, your virtually infinitesimal minute choice has induced you to be listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. The topic for this week's meditative essay is knowledge. There are many kinds of conceptual systems which are considered to be knowledge. Most of these forms of knowledge may have no lasting or essential value. For example, one can have knowledge of philosophy, and one can have a philosophy of knowledge. However, philosophy, taken in and of itself, does not necessarily constitute knowledge about anything. Philosophy involves methodologies, ideas, arguments, issues, problems, theories, reflections, values, critical analysis, imagination, intuition, reasoning, logic, questions, and assumptions. For more than 2,000 years, human beings have been combining these different constituent aspects of philosophy into countless conceptual packages, like widgets of varied description coming off an assembly line. One may find these philosophical packages interesting and useful in various ways, one may derive meaning and purpose from such packages. One even may organize one's life around a particular philosophical package. Whether any of these packages provide one with knowledge of the nature of a given dimension of reality or truth is as contentious an issue now as it was several thousand years ago. Whether any of these packages will permit one to really know whom we are or what we are doing here is uncertain. To know the ins and outs of philosophy requires a lifetime of dedicated study. In fact, one lifetime is probably not enough. There are hundreds, perhaps thousands, of philosophical experts in areas involving logic, metaphysics, ethics, epistemology, history, education, mathematics, science, economics, psychology, politics, and law. Most of these topical areas can be broken down further into numerous subspecialities. None of these experts has expertise in all areas. In fact, most professional philosophers have only a passing acquaintance with any but a small handful of philosophical areas. Thousands of books and articles are written every year in every one of these areas of philosophical speciality. No one human being, not even a professional, can keep up with the mass of material which is being churned out. Someone may read it. Someone may reflect on it. Someone may critically respond to it with additional books and articles. What it all means is anybody's guess. What relation, if any, such material has to truth or knowledge is unknown to the vast majority of us and perhaps even to professional philosophers themselves. Indeed, one is faced with the following question. How much of one's life does one want to spend trying to find out if there is anything of lasting value in any of this material. The story of philosophy repeats itself across the spectrum of disciplines. We have lots of theories, conventions, frameworks, principles, rules, methods, speculations, conjectures, ideas, systems, and perspectives in physics, law, biology, economics, mathematics, history, literature, medicine, engineering, social sciences, and so on. In almost all of these topical areas, there are facts 
demonstrations, experimental results, proofs, confirmations, probabilities, and possibilities. In addition, there are unknowns, uncertainties, inconsistencies, anomalies, paradoxes, and controversies. Thousands of books and articles are published every year in many different languages on all of these subjects. For almost every position taken on any given issue, there are usually several counter-positions. Theories are constantly changing. Material is being updated on a daily basis. New technologies and instruments are being introduced. Ideas, methods, and textbooks regularly become outdated. How does the non-professional individual navigate her or his way through all of this? How can one speak of becoming an educated person when any given individual is ignorant of so much? Furthermore, even with respect to that in which we have become educated, what is it we really know? Any one of these areas can totally consume an individual, and yet even a very brilliant, totally committed individual still would not have mastered all that can be learned in such areas. How long and how far should one pursue any of these areas to determine if they have any lasting and essential knowledge concerning the reality of human beings and creation? To complicate all of the foregoing, we really don't have a great deal of time in which to digest, reflect on, and evaluate any of the material to which we are exposed. Much of what is taught and learned is for purposes of getting a job which can pay enough money to keep us going. Each of us must economically justify our existence. Meaning, purpose, identity, justice, and truth have, at best, only marginal importance in the commercial scheme of things. Knowledge frequently is of value to the extent it can be exploited commercially. Education is valued, for the most part, because it serves the economic needs of government and business. As long as we work and consume and pay taxes, neither business nor government really cares whether we ever come to realize our essential identity and capacity. They don't care what we know about ourselves or anything else, as long as we know how to help them do and get what they want. Business and government are not interested in spirituality unless one can show them how it will enhance productivity and competitiveness or financially improve the bottom line. The scary part in all of this is we are business and we are government. We tend to call something knowledge for the jobs, money, consumption, and gratifications it makes possible. For the most part, we want education to serve our economic interests and career needs. We complain about the great need for values, meaning, purpose, justice, truth, and identity in our lives, yet we are not prepared to let those qualities get in the way of the cycles of business, profit, ambition, and success which are consuming our lives at a faster and faster rate of speed. Is modern knowledge really helping us to come to terms with whom we are? Does modern knowledge even know whom we are or what our essential capacity is? Does modern knowledge have the capacity to assist us to realize our essential identity, even assuming it accepted such an idea? Each person will have to come to her or his own conclusions concerning the foregoing questions. In reflecting on these matters, however, one might keep certain things in mind. The essence, purpose, general nature, and basic methodology of the Sufi path has remained unchanged since its inception. 
Whatever legitimate changes may have emerged over time among the practitioners of this mystical path were of a derivative nature from first principles. The Sufi understanding of the potential of human beings has remained consistent over time. Furthermore, every generation of Sufi practitioners has exhibited many individuals who give clear evidence of having realized that potential. To be a Sufi, one does not have to grapple with the impossible task of mastering all of the information and data coming from the many different disciplines to which modernity gives expression. Instead, one merely has to grapple with the very difficult but far from impossible task of mastering oneself. To seek to have knowledge of one's essential spiritual nature, one does not need to have access to or an understanding of any aspect of modern conceptual knowledge. All one needs is an authentic Sufi master and a sincere commitment to that sheikh. According to the practitioners of the Sufi path, whatever knowledge may come from science, medicine, and other forms of modern scholarship will be of use at best only up to the time of our death. After that, such knowledge will have no value to us. On the other hand, Sufi masters indicate that whatever knowledge we gain on the Sufi path will have value beyond the present life. In fact, such knowledge will have its greatest significance and use after our physical death. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Thank you.